It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics. When they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Kelly Jackson. I'm the president of the board of directors of the Empire Club of Canada and vice president, external affairs and professional learning at Humber College. I'm your host for today's event, Human Capital's Role in the Canadian Economy, Investing in Canada's Future. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement. I am hosting this event within the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandotte peoples. In acknowledging traditional territories, I do so from a place of understanding the privilege my ancestors and I have had in this country since they first arrived here in the 1830s. As farmers in Southwestern Ontario, I imagine they felt a very deep connection to the land and yet likely did not recognize how that connection was built on the displacement of others. Delivering a land acknowledgement for me, it's always an important opportunity to reflect on our human connection and responsibility to care for the land and to recognize that to do so, we must always respect each other and acknowledge our histories. We encourage everyone tuning in today to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. The Empire Club of Canada is a nonprofit organization. So I now wanna take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the club and make these events possible and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our lead event sponsors, CIBC, Gallant McDonald, and Navigator. Thank you to today's supporting sponsor, Tories LLP. And a big thank you to our season sponsors, First Power, Canadian Bankers Association, Leona, and Waste Connections of Canada. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping notes. I'd like to remind everybody who is participating today that this is an interactive event. So if you're attending live, I encourage you to engage by taking advantage of the question box you can see below your on-screen video player. We have reserved some time for audience questions at the end of the discussion. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using the hashtags displayed on screen throughout the event. And if you require technical assistance at any point, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button on the right-hand side of your screen. To those watching on demand later and to those tuning in on the podcast, welcome. It is now my honor to welcome our guests today to the Empire Club of Canada's virtual stage for the first time. They include 
The Honorable Ahmed Hussein, Canada's Minister of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion. Kathleen Taylor, Chair of the Board, RBC. Mark Wiseman, Chairman, IMCO. Senator Hassan Youssef. And last but not least, today's moderator, Elena Cherney, Coverage Editor, Wall Street Journal. Welcome. If you'd like to learn more about our speakers, you can find their full bios on the page below the video player on your screen. It is now my pleasure to hand it over to Elena to get us started. Welcome, okay, over to you. Thank you, Kelly and the Empire Club and welcome to our panelists. This is a fascinating moment to be looking at the role of human capital in the Canadian economy. Right now, unemployment in this country is at a record low. After hitting a high of over 13% during the pandemic, there are now not enough workers to fill open positions in many sectors. And many employers are having to hike wages to fill jobs, which of course is stoking inflation, as we know. Those conditions may change if and as the economy cools. But for this panel, the question today is a longer term and more structural one. Taking into account demographic trends, technology, changes in how we work and what businesses will want and need, how can Canada build a better workforce? What kind of human capital investments are needed and who should fund and deliver them? Let's talk first about the challenge and frame it in terms of the moment. What lessons have the last two plus years of pandemic and recovery taught us about human capital and workforce and the workforce this country needs? Can I ask Hassan for you to start by helping us to better understand what is the human capital challenge facing Canada and what kinds of investments should we be considering in human capital and the future workforce? Well, I think we've been doing a relatively good job. I think we can do a better job in regard to the people that we're bringing to the country and how we integrate them into the economy. And there's a variety of things, obviously, that face uh, jurisdiction. And across the country, I think there's been a broad-based support to a large extent for immigration across the country. Canadians see this as a positive thing. And I think for the most part, we tend to, as a country, find a, a very good place of integrating our immigrants. But the success of our immigrants in regard to their skill level and the talent they bring have not been as successful in regard to how we have treated people. So we got to look at how we can get better outcome for immigrants that are coming here with incredible skill, but at the same time, need to recognize that, of course, the labor market continue to change. And of course, the pandemic certainly has shown that our ability to try to ramp up um, the level of immigrants we want to settle in the country. Certainly, there's a backlog in the country we need to clear up. And more importantly, uh, we need to, of course, uh, accelerate how we can better integrate those immigrants that are coming here. And more importantly, how do we adapt them to the skills that they have, but also how do we upgrade their skills to ensure they're going to continue to be successful in regard to how they perform over a longer period in, in, in the country. You've moved us very quickly to what I suspect will be the crux of the conversation around immigration as one of the main levers. Let's back up just a little bit though and talk about the labor force, the workforce and human capital. What kinds of workers are needed? What is the problem? Is it a question of numbers? It is a question of, Mark, I see you're, you're itching to jump in here. Thanks, well, I remember to unmute myself. Go ahead, Hassan, first. No, 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 absolutely. I'll, I'll come in right after you. So I'm sure we'll compliment each other. Um, or you'll vehemently disagree with me, one of the two. Um, look, I, I think what's happened with the, with the pandemic, Elena, is it's essentially accelerated a lot of the trends that we knew were already uh, coming down the pipe. 
And the incredible thing about demographics, and I know this from my time of uh, running the uh, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, is that they're unbelievably predictable. We know, for example, if there were X number of uh, uh, people born in the year uh, 2000, uh, we know how many 22-year-olds uh, we're going to have today. And so we've known about these demographic trends. We've known about the aging of the Canadian population, not just the number of people, but the shape of that population. What I mean by the shape of that population uh, is something called the dependency ratio, which is really, really important, which is the number of people working in our society relative to the number of retirees who depend on those workers to help um, support them in their old age, or in fact, um, younger dependents as well. So the thing that's important is We've not just had a, a, we've had a growing population, but on a relative basis, we've, that middle, uh, that working age population has been shrinking. That we knew was coming down the pipe and it's been accelerated for a whole bunch of reasons by the pandemic. So it's kind of come about 10 years earlier than we expected it. And today we are now in the middle, in my view, of a global war uh, for talent and Canada, actually has a lot of advantages uh, in terms of how it's going to fight that war. But we have to realize that we're in that war for talent and be incredibly proactive um, about how we are going to support our society going forward. And, and it's not just about workers, but it's also about having an appropriate base uh, to pay taxes to support the types of things that we've come to uh, rely on in this country, whether it's you know high quality public health care, um, whether it's the type of uh, more broad social services um, that we want to have in the country and uh, a robust uh, economy. So all of those things uh, come together and, and the pandemic has accelerated what we knew was going to happen. Okay, let, let, let's stick with that as the sort of challenge that has been uh, laying out the challenge. Um, Katie, how has the, can you talk a little bit more from, from more of a private sector perspective? What have you seen in terms of the way that the pandemic has accelerated these de demographic trends and changes in the workforce that were already underway? Sure, thank you. Um, there's lots of ways to think about human capital, but really simply stated, it's the, the aggregation of the knowledge, the skills, the experience of an entire population. And as we've heard from, uh, from, from Mark and the Senator, Canada is very blessed in this regard, right? We have a, a huge and deep indigenous population, traditions, wisdom from, from those, uh, those peoples. Uh, extraordinary rates of education um, and high degrees of achievement, not only among our, our educated students, but also you think about our universities, our colleges, our institutions and faculties. And large immigration, which we've touched on, that has made Canada one of the most open and diverse societies um, in the world. The, but the mere fact of all of that, the mere fact of a, of a great human capital base um, isn't, isn't necessarily sufficient as we've learned in the last two years. Just having great human capital, great people with great, uh, with great potential doesn't mean that everyone is thriving and finding a sense of belonging in the economy as we've, uh, as we've organized it. Um, the last two years have heightened this, if you think about just the impacts of the pandemic, which we're still living with, the economic dislocation that was caused to so many through those years, um, the social justice issues um, that arose both separately and combined with the pandemic, really gave rise to me to a, a broader understanding of the intersectionality of so many issues coming together simultaneously, whether those are related to our Indigenous peoples, our peoples of colour, our economy, 
the challenges that women and working families faced during the pandemic, all of which made very clear um, that all of our policy, whether it be industrial policy, economic policy, housing policy, human capital policy, immigration policy, all of these things need to be about, thought about much more holistically, um, I think, going forward, because the, the, what kind of human capital you need is, is dependent on what kind of economy you're planning for, what kind of your economy you're planning for drives what kind of human capital needs you're going to have, and the infrastructure that needs to be built um, to support all of that, all of it so interconnected, so interrelated. And I think for me, that was the great lesson of, of the last little while is that while many of these trends were underway and many of them were known, uh, some of them have accelerated, but they have all become more interconnected. I still wanna do a little bit more work here and maybe um, Ahmed, you can help us with this. Um, just defining the problem. Mark is talking about the dependency ratio and demographic factors that accelerated, uh, Katie are alluding to uh, various other forces that have also kind of combined to highlight the problem. Ahmed, um, can you help us to better understand what do you think, the, the, what is the, the bottom line problem here? Is it a number of workers? Are we missing the right workers in certain sectors? Is it a skills mismatch? Help us to understand what is the problem that we're trying to solve here. First of all, I thank you for, for the opportunity. I, I want to really highlight what Marcus said, uh, the issue of uh, the ratio between workers and retirees is extremely important. It should be a national conversation. I used to highlight that every time that I speak uh, to employers to uh, uh, and to uh, folks who didn't really realize the the importance of immigration to labor market uh, labor market growth. But what I see as, as some of the major problems can be summarized as this. You can build a bridge and unless cars and people use the bridge, then the bridge is useless. We have trade agreements that are very progressive that really haven't been leveraged adequately, in my opinion, or aggressively by small and medium-sized enterprises. We have emerging markets in the world that uh, have a really good return on investment, but our businesses are simply not aware of them or are not taking enough advantage. Our immigration system is the same. We have a great immigration system. The OECD did an independent three-year review of our entire immigration system. And the two things, they said it should be the gold standard for everyone else, but they suggested two areas of improvement. One was better connection between our immigration and labor market needs. And the second thing they called for is spreading the benefits of immigration to rural Canada. By the time the report came out, we were already doing the second thing, which is we introduced a rural immigration program. But the first one remains, how do we connect uh, better our, our severe labor market shortages? And I, I believe we have 1 million unfilled jobs today in Canada. How do we fill those jobs with a, a really amazing tool that the whole world understands is a really good tool, but unless you use the tool even more efficiently and more effectively, you lose out. And then the final thing is on the credentials. This comes up every time that I do a, a town hall across the country. Unfortunately, we can't do anything about it. It's a provincial issue. Provinces have to take this on. We can kind of tinker around the edges, but the, the, the constitution says it's an area of provincial responsibility. So I would say with Canada being an energy superpower, with Canada having 
a lot of the uh, critical minerals that are needed for the for the green transition with our population growth, with our skills, uh, ability to, to attract the best and the brightest. We just need to continue to realize that we have all these bridges, but we need to maximize them. We need to maximize the progressive trade agreements we've signed. We need to really maximize the, the benefits of immigration. Why are we not doing more matchmaking? I met a truck, uh, truck, uh, trucking company owner in New Brunswick who had to go to 14 different countries to, to seek out truck drivers. He shouldn't have had to do that. Our embassies need to do a better job to do the matchmaking. And some of the things that, are, that we can do is better connect uh, small and medium-sized employers to, uh, to highly skilled workers and countries that have retooled their education and technical skills training systems to supply skilled labor to, 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 to advanced countries. We, we're not leveraging that. And our immigration system is way better than Germany and France and who are taking advantage of those, uh, of those opportunities. Uh, I met the Tunisian ambassador who said, if an employer calls us, we can turn around uh, skilled laborers that meet their specifications within hours or days or weeks, depending on what the, the request is. So, so we have all these tools, but we need to really have national leadership and provincial and municipal and, and private sector collaboration to leverage all these different tools that we have. Uh, the last thing I'll say is indigenous rec uh, reconciliation with indigenous peoples. We, all, we, we see that as a process. We see that as something that we have to do, of course, but it is also, it is also an economic development opportunity for both Canada and indigenous nations. Um, many countries that I've spoken to look at us as their, uh, their counterpart that they need to learn from in terms of unlocking natural resources in areas inhabited by their indigenous peoples. And they look to Canada as an example of how to do that right. Now, are we leveraging that? They wanna partner with us as, as opposed to other countries because they say Canadian companies are bringing that extra uh, element. And so are, are we leveraging that? The, the answer again is no. So, so that, that would be my theme. Eleanor, can I just make, can I sorry, just make one point? which is why I think this panel is so important uh, and why this discussion is so important. You know, um, you know I, I'm a business person. And as I think about it, you know, go back to, you know, your grade nine economics class, your grade 10 economics class. There's two inputs to any, any firm uh, and any commercial enterprise, and that's capital and labor. And we talk a lot in this country about the capital part. So, um, uh, the minister was, was, was speaking about bridges and I, a little bit metaphorically and a little bit, uh, but I think a little bit literally, and that's important and having the right infrastructure and the right capital spending and R and D that's critical, but we tend in our discussions, um, heretofore not to talk about the labor component of a, of a vibrant economy. And that's, what's becoming very clear through the pandemic. And so as a country, it's not just a focus on, the, on, on capital, but we have to focus on, on labor. And that's number of people and giving those people the right skills, bringing in people with the right skills, but as importantly, skilling them when they get here and reskilling those who, whose uh, skills are no longer um, necessarily the ones that we need for a modern economy. And, and so bridges, Toll roads, ports, airports, pipelines, great. Um, 
but <laughs> there's a whole other part of the equation that's required for economic success. I think it's a great point, Mark, and, and uh, one of the things I'm, I've been talking about a lot through the pandemic is, is, the, is thinking about physical infrastructure, the kind you, you described there, but also pairing that with social infrastructure. So the bridge analogy is a great one I use all the time, which is we need bridges, roads, and, and, uh, and uh, subways and trains, all of us, to, to get to work, to get home, to get to uh, the places we need to go. But for and, and being very involved in the, in the childcare policy uh, uh, space this last couple of years, that's infrastructure too, right? Because women and working families, as we learned during the pandemic, they can't even get out the door to drive on the road to take the train unless that social infrastructure is there to take care of their children um, while they're leaving and while they're away. And so expanding even beyond childcare to the other elements of the economy that are needed to support. The traditional thinking around infrastructure and how do we do a better job of integrating all of those needs so that human capital and and investment capital uh, works more seamlessly together Let, let's come back to some of these very important questions reskilling um child care uh ways of supporting human capital that would um you know further allow us to fill some of these needs but i think the bottom line here that i'm hearing from all of you is is really around you know the gap between that's been created by demographics and sped up by uh forces unleashed by the pandemic that there simply aren't enough workers and particularly in some critical sectors um the main driver we have I think all of you have touched on this, the main driver for growing, the only driver for expanding the labor force is really immigration. Um, and Ned, you talked about the need to find ways of better connecting immigration policy with labor market needs. How do we do that? People have been talking about it for a long time. There are clearly gaps and problems. Let's hear from all of you. What are the problems and what are some possible solutions? Can, you can I answer on? that? or? or... Sorry, was that to me? Yes, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this. So let me give you an example of a tool that we already have that no other country has, but that we're not maximizing. We have a great program that, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, Mark knows very well and, and Hassan as well and others uh, called the Express Entry Program. It looks at your skills, your education, your work experience, your age, your language skills, and you put that into a portal and it, it throws out a number. And based on that score, you compete against everyone else and you get selected for permanent residency in Canada in six months. Now, great program. It doesn't directly connect with the current labor market shortages. In other words, the, the, the better way to really leverage that program would be to take a list. So we have about, I think, two or three or four draws of that program every year. What I would do is I would take I would go to the Minister of uh, Employment uh, and Labor, and I would say, give me a list of the top 10 most severe labor market shortages by occupation in Canada. I would take those top 10, and then I would run a special draw or two special draws for the express entry. And I would say, for this particular draw, only these 10 professions can apply, or these 10 occupations. And then I would just match them. And I would keep doing that until, and then we have a new list of 10 most severe when we've solved the first one, we do another one and we'll do another one. That's just one example of a program that we have, but that we're not connecting it directly to the actual labor market shortages that exist today. 
And let me just push you a little bit on that, since you are uh, a member of cabinet. What, why are we not doing that? What is the, why is that not happening? I think some of our IT systems are much older than myself. There's 56-year-old systems running some of our benefit programs and our processing. So there's a digitization uh, process that's ongoing in government that has to be completed. I think there has to be better alignment of uh, technology and policymaking and political will and, 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 and everything has to kind of align to, to make that happen, but it's something that I'm pushing for. The second thing that I'll say is this, apart from immigration, you talked about labor market shortages. I think one of the things that the pandemic has, has laid bare is how at, this, at the same time as we're talking about labor market shortages and severe um, severe uh, sort of uh, lack of ability to find people, we find in certain segments of the population, there's very high unemployment still. So for young black Canadian males, for example, in, in GTA, they, they have doubled the unemployment rate of their other peers, uh, indigenous peoples, women, for example. And, and I, you know, Whenever I talked about childcare, when I was putting together the, the, the Canada Early Learning and Childcare Plan, uh, depending on the audience, I would mainly focus the economic benefits and the labor market participation that this, this would unleash. Hundreds of thousands of women will now enter the, the, the job market because they have access to affordable childcare. It is a real, real you know, investment in human capital and uh, plugging those labor market shortages, but also increasing productivity, right? And, and so I think you know, a lot of this stuff that is the solution to labor market shortages and skill shortages also has a social justice bent to it. If we, if we really lean in on tackling the exclusion of black Canadians and indigenous peoples and other folks from our economy, we actually solve some of our economic challenges as well. And that was one of the ways I would sell childcare uh, to CEOs. I would say, look, this is, this is good for your bottom line and so for I, your productivity. I, 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 I'm gonna jump in a little bit, Alan. I just cover, first of all, the point that the minister makes um, around um, you know, how social justice and, and this issue actually converge is, is a really, really, uh, important important one because uh, you know we if we have under uh, underutilized people in this country we should we should figure out how to utilize uh, their skills um, as a as a as a priority that's just that's just common sense not it's not just the right thing to do it's it's the right thing to do from an economic uh, point of view as well but I do want to push back a little bit because um, this we we've got to make this a priority um, and um, we've got to uh, create efficiency in the system. And, you know, an old IT system, I'm sorry, if that was, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, uh, because he's a friend, I'm gonna pick on the minister a little bit. Um, if this was uh, one of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Katie's uh, senior executives at the Royal Bank of Canada, um, they'd figure out how to get, um, how, they, how they get the IT system uh, fixed. And um, the board of directors in this case, uh, or the shareholders, in this case, citizens of Canada, uh, would hold the executives uh, accountable. We have 1.3 million people, as I understand it, uh, in backlog in the immigration system. The point system, the much vaunted point system in Canada that you also described, um, there are people lined up. It's, it's a, over a year backlog in terms of people who are applying, who have qualified points that don't even hear back from the government in terms of getting in. And other countries are moving ahead of us. The UK has now announced a program 
that anybody who graduates, any foreign student who graduates from the top 50 post-secondary uh, institutions in the UK is automatically granted um, permanent residency in the UK. We should do the same program. I'm actually in favor of that. I've, could, I've called for that. We, we could do that. We could do that. We almost, should do that. Almost, yes. almost immediately. Um, and, um, and we should generally just, uh, you know, get ourselves efficiently moving and being more competitive. The other thing that's happening today, we talk about where social justice and economic uh, outcomes converge, always a great, uh, a, a great outcome, is with, um, with IT talent uh, coming out of Ukraine, uh, Russia, and Belarus. Um, other countries are picking up incredibly skilled people who want to leave those countries who don't agree, uh, are either trying to escape um, aggression or don't agree with the aggression. Um, and we're losing out incredibly talented people in the exact areas um, that we'd want. And frankly, those people would rather come to Canada than some of the other places they're going. But it's competitive and we have to compete. And if we don't learn to compete in real time, we're going to lose. Sorry, I had to say that. What is the role? What is the role of the private sector? Um, I think you know we've isolated. Or, yes, this one. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, some of the points that's been made, I mean, where are we having this conversation other than here? How do we really, uh, I think, deal with this reality? Because it's not something that just popped up yesterday. This is an ongoing challenge for the country. And the conversation we're having, I think, are not uh, being heard at many levels of government, sometimes at a national level, but also the provincial level. Because it's one thing to say that we need to bring more immigrants in the country, and there is a commitment to do that, but ultimately, uh, people who come here also have to succeed uh, if we're going to utilize their talent and their skills when they come to the country. But people's talent and skills don't remain stagnant. We also have to uh, talk about how we upgrade them. And I think at the same time, there is a recognition that um, we haven't done such a good job in, of course, uh, to give immigrant the opportunity to succeed. There is the, the data that's suggesting that people who have come here over a variety of uh, period haven't succeeded the way we would like them to succeed. And I think that should spell some uh, worry for us to think about how can we do a better job in ensuring they're going to do that going forward at the end. Of the day. But the skill shortage is an issue is also not has to do with immigrants coming into the country what are we doing to train our own uh, Canadians or people who are here to ensure they can continue to readjust to the changing labor market that they're faced with? Because if we're not training people, it's simply I think there's a magic wand that's going to meet the skill shortage. We have to continue to train. Employers have to do that, and government's got to encourage that, but also have to support that to ensure that employers are going to continue to do their part to ensure we're continuing to redevelop uh, people to meet the changing labor market that is ongoing because it's going to continue to be ongoing. And if we're not doing that, it's simply, okay, uh, Charlie can't do widgets anymore. So what do we do with Charlie? Well, if we don't reskill them, how is Charlie going to get a better job? So I think it's critical in, a, in, in looking to the future. We have to do a better job in how we bring voices together to figure out how we collaborate to solve because government can't do it on their own. We've got to work in a multidimensional way in the country, employers and others, to figure out how we train people in a better way. And I think that that conversation has to be uniform. It hasn't been uniform. It needs to be uniform if we're going to succeed at that. And it comes back to the point that Mark has been making, that if we want to attract people and keep putting out this message, Canada is a good place to come, we have to ensure they are succeeding because if they don't succeed, they're going to go someplace else or not come here in the future. 
I like the fact that we honed in on a specific element of government policy, the IT system that should be doing a better job of matching uh, who comes in and, and helping to make the make policy translate into results more effectively. Similarly, um, let's push a little bit further on the private sector side. What is the role of the private sector? What are some specific steps that you know companies should be taking in this country on reskilling and on uh, helping to ensure that those who come to this country um, find the success that they've come for? Katie, do you have thoughts on that? Sure, I think it, it goes directly to the senator's point around uh, around training, reskilling, upskilling, uh, onboarding. Um, clearly, there needs to be much more coordination between the private sector and and the public sector as it relates to the human capital agenda. I, I think of it sort of like um, you know, government perhaps let's think of it in business terms is in charge of setting the policy and the strategic direction uh, for the industrial and economic outlook for the country. The implementation of that, the execution of that, the operationalization of that is all in the private sector, or, or most of it's in the private sector. And so it, there's an inextricable link between these two streams of thought that needs to come much closer together if we're to have, uh, if we're to have um, any, any hope of, uh, of solving these, these really big problems for, that will ensure the prosperity of Canada. And to your point specifically about, about what the private sector should be doing, and, and I think in many ways is doing, articulating uh, labor needs. I think that's a very, very important part, how that translates through uh, the point system and the immigration system. We need to talk about further. There are some industries in this country um, whose need for workers is very dire. Think tourism and hospitality represents about 11% of the Canadian economy. This sector was decimated from a human capital perspective when contactless work became much, much more attractive to people in that sector through the pandemic. The next to impossible to encourage most people to come back there. Um, and we're just gearing up for our first, what I would call semi-normal summer. Restaurants, hotels, um, look at what's happening at airports. We're all, we're all seeing it. These are all jobs that are considered to be entry level. But there's still jobs that are so critical to the economy. Is there something we can do, be doing with our Commonwealth Youth Program um, to try to ease the burden there? We get a lot of young people come here, try Canada out uh, for the two years that they're allowed to, um, and then they have to return or go to another Commonwealth country. Um, uh, from the private sector's perspective, you know, helping all of those young people, whether they are uh, new to Canada or whether they are our own population, which, which we've already commented on here. Um, we've got a lot of untapped, wonderful uh, human, human opportunity with Canadians who are already here. That's training, that's education, that's a, that's a, a, a first start at the first uh, job about RBC Future Launch and why that was put in place so many years ago was to try to bridge this gap from, from moving from your last piece of education to your first piece of work and giving all of our young people a chance to really get that, that great first start. But that training can't stop there. The economy is shifting, uh, preferences for work are shifting, uh, the digital landscape is continuing to expand. And so all of the time, both private and public sector, I think have to be thinking together about how do we facilitate an ongoing retraining, upskilling, continuous learning mindset um, in the country so that people really get into the habit of continuing to, to learn and grow as part of their everyday journey. 
I want to remind folks that um, I'm being asked to remind the audience that you can submit questions in the box below the video player. We will go to questions um, in a few minutes. So uh, please do submit your questions in that box. Um, I, I want to, before we go to questions, talk about a couple of other uh, pieces Elena, of the Can I just yeah. jump in just quickly please. on that point? I, I'm going to make a very simple point, um, which is, you know, we have a productivity gap in this country. Um, we've been talking about that productivity gap, the gap between Canadian productivity and U.S. productivity. Um, and, and, and we talk about um, R&D and the lack of R&D spending by the Canadian private sector uh, as being a big part of that problem. I, I, I haven't seen the stats, but I've got to believe that skilling and reskilling is also part of that productivity gap. So if we want to address the productivity issue, again, we have to address both capital and labor in, in closing that gap. So it's, it's, it's all of these things linked, linked together. The OECD number for our training uh, spending in this country and the private sector does not, it doesn't look very good. It looks very dismal. And I think that's one area we've got to figure out a way how to incentivize employers to say, you got to spend more on your training. I mean, obviously one jurisdiction in the country, Quebec, where they incentivize employers to say you spend 1% of your payroll on trading or else we're going to tax you. Now, that's one way to get people to do things. But I think we need to do a better job across the country. And uh, the data does not show that we're doing a great job in terms of spending. And if we don't improve that, I think to Mark's point, we're not going to change the productivity gap in the country. So these are some excellent points beyond uh, immigration that will help to amplify and um, invest and find ways of investing in human capital. Let's talk about another one that's been controversial. What role would raising the retirement age play in um, managing these demographic changes and dependency ratio? Are you in favor, um, Ahmed, are you in favor of raising the retirement age? I think it would be an, an option that should be considered, uh, at least in terms of allowing uh, folks who want to work beyond their retirement age to do so. It would be a temporary uh, fix. I don't think it would um, permanently solve the, the conundrum that uh, Mark alluded to when he talked about the shape of, of our population, not just uh, the, the, uh, the, the ratios. Uh, and so it, it would be one of the tools, but, I, but again, very, it, would, it would only give us a little bit of a breathing space while we try to uh, fix the long-term issue. The, the other piece I wanted to highlight is investments in, uh, in IP. Um, we lag behind uh, our, our partner countries when it comes to investments in intellectual property. And then I'll go back to what I said in the beginning, um, really becoming a little bit more, less conservative in terms of taking advantage of emerging markets and, 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 and seeking out that prosperity and commercializing the, 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 the technology that uh, we, we're developing here in Canada in our research institutes. I would only make the point on retirement age. I mean, for some folks, obviously, uh, it's an option. Uh, their body is in good shape and their health is in good shape. But there's a lot of people, of course, uh, who are doing very difficult uh, uh, job that their body do wear out. And, of course, you have to really take that into consideration. I think there are obviously... Uh, changes to uh, Canada pension and other programs that allow people to get a better uh, income if they delay their retirement for an age. And some people are doing that uh, right now, but I think that that is not going to solve a problem in the long term. Um, I, I think it will solve it for a short period, but I think the, the larger, larger challenge is, is how do we deal with this demographic bulge that is coming and is going to accelerate. And I think to a large extent, 
how do we also tap into the talent that the retirement age is providing? Because these people that are retiring has incredible amount of knowledge and experience that can uh, benefit a lot of young people who need to learn uh, from them. And how do we bring them back in a way to play a role that can help mentor a lot of young people that want to get into some of the sectors in which actually they, they perform with? Now, I, can I just jump in there just briefly? We don't really have uh, a mandatory retirement age in Canada. Um, we, we, we have that for senators, I think, but not and Supreme Court justices, but not for, uh, not for too many others. And, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. You tend to have in countries mandatory retirement ages when you have the opposite problem, where you just don't have uh, enough jobs for people uh, in the country. Um, but here, there's a lot of, flexib there's a lot of flexibility. Um, you can take your CPP early if that's what you decide to do, for example, or you can delay it and, um, and it's prorated um, economically uh, appropriately. So um, people should have the choice um, when, they, when, they, when they believe that they can uh, you know, afford and wish to retire, they should be able uh, uh, to do that. So I, I wouldn't ad advocate you know, any change to retirement age in this country um, with the exception of, uh, of senators, which maybe we could uh, get them to retire a little bit earlier, uh, Hassan. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm getting, we're getting a number of questions here that sort of center around some of the questions that have been raised earlier uh, about um, how we help immigrants succeed in this country, how workplaces help to develop skills. Um, one uh, questioner asks, uh, says, my concern with immigration is creating equitably inclusive workplaces where the talent we bring can actually succeed and stay in their jobs. Are we looking at how we hold employers accountable? And I, this could also apply uh, as we think about um, you know, marginalized communities and deepening hiring in, in those communities. I think, it's both, I, I think it's both uh, employers, but it's also government because we've got to see this as, uh, as, as something we pride ourselves on. And if people fail, because we're not doing a good job in integrating them, I think it speaks volumes to that uh, we didn't really think this through. And I think uh, some data is showing this in a very serious way. People who have come here for a variety of reasons with skills and ability of not able to see their same level of economic um, uh, benefit uh, that match their skills when they come to the country. And I think we've got to do a better job. It also speaks to the fact that there are still some systemic problems in the job market that we need to really start to dig deeper into say this can't continue because it's really affecting some community disproportionately to mothers in the country. And it's a real problem. It's not an, you know something that we're just talking about in an abstract way. And I think governments and employers need to figure out how we need to overcome this because if we don't, I think it will continue to exacerbate the challenge that immigrants face coming to this country, especially those who come, of course, who are, are people of color because they're facing more, more so predominant than other immigrants in the country. We talked earlier a little bit about the uh, about the provincial licensing issues that prevent well-trained uh, and, and highly accredited immigrants from breaking through in their uh, professions of choice, and 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 I think that there we've got to think about a way for the federal government, um, which is bringing helping to bring all these folks here, and the provincial governments to get closer in alignment on how that's going to be reworked. What kind of incentives will be in place to ensure, for example? that the nurses and the doctors that are immigrating here just to take something that's on the front page of the news have a fast track. Uh, obviously, we have to be sure that, they, that, that the skill set is, is a match for our system, but what's the fast track system? What are we gonna do to facilitate 
those kinds of accreditations. Engineers would be no different. We can go on and on and on with the, with the list, architects, et cetera, um, where provincial associations are essentially the gatekeepers of admission. Um, and so all of the great work that's done on attracting and, 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 and getting these folks here in a global competition for talent, as many of them have, have uh, mentioned, when word gets out that it becomes a dead end street, then all of a sudden, maybe the best and the brightest aren't, aren't on our application list. And so we really do, I think, have to find a way for business, for, for the federal government, for the provincial government to come together and really try to figure out how to streamline this path to prosperity for, uh, for, for, for our immigration population. If I can just add to that, there is a private sector role, though, because I've noticed that even in some of the professions where the professional bodies have moved in the right direction and they've kind of streamlined the licensing process without diminishing any integrity issues, even there, the employers have a, a mental blockage in terms of giving a chance to people who have international uh, credentials. They, they keep asking about Canadian work experience to uh, uh, someone who has 22 years uh, of experience being a lawyer in the UK. Like, so the employers have a role too. And I, I know one of the programs we had in the federal government, I think it's still there, is to pay employers to, to pay the salary of newly licensed uh, you know, nurses or electricians and others to, uh, to, 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 to kind of sense it to kind of reassure employers that it's okay to give these folks a chance. They don't have to have 20 years of Canadian work experience. I really believe that when we are having this discussion, we got to differentiate between all the other professions and medicine because medicine, they, it just, unless the provincial, um, uh, the provinces uh, and the uh, exercise real political will, in terms of moving the, moving the colleges, medical colleges forward and create more residency spaces and so on, this, we will we'll keep having this discussion. I believe the other bodies, uh, not all of them, but, but a lot of them have made progress. There's a huge difference in terms of the, the system that was in place for internationally trained lawyers when I first came to this country 25 years ago and now. But for medicine, not much has moved. So I think we need to kind of celebrate the successes and, and keep encouraging uh, uh, reforms in the others. And they speak to a couple of the questions that we're getting here around um, how do we induce professional regulatory organizations um, to accept and rely on foreign credentials and education. I think this is a big concern of the audience. Um, another related question that I think is a good one to touch on uh, we have a question here. How can academic institutions like the University of Waterloo, largest co-op program in the world, an extensive talent pool, um, you know, how can these universities uh, be part of the answer in figuring out how to fill the skills gap, especially in the competition abroad when we're talking about talent? So I think that's a, a great, I don't know if anybody wants to jump in there, but worth raising that audience point. Um, well, I think one... One quick example, just going back to the, you know, the, when there's a crisis, what tends to happen? Ontario right now is facing a huge nursing shortage. There's recognition by the provincial government and snap of a finger, the provincial government decided, you know, foreign trained nurses, a thousand of them will be integrated in the system overnight. 
Now, why did it take a crisis for the provincial government to act, given that these jurisdictions know that these people were there in the job market and couldn't work in the sector to begin with? So I think it, it speaks a, a lot to when there's a crisis, how governments and, and institutions can act. I think we just need to recognize that, um, the Minister said earlier, is that we've got this federation that, you know, we can bring people here, but then the province decide ultimately where they're going to get to work in their field. I think we've got to do a better job in saying that it's only fair if you're going to bring somebody here, you're going to allow them to work in their field and let's figure out what are the challenges in making that happen and how quick can we make that happen? Because not only are they good for the job market, but also they're good for the economy. And to a large extent, I think the province got to play a better role in how they respond to these challenges because the licensing authority are all, all provincial based to begin with. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I do want to raise, there are a couple of other really interesting areas that, that would be entirely other panels, um, I think, but, but are worth mentioning here. We have uh, one uh, uh, audience member asking how the declining fertility rate plays into the human capital equation. I think we've been trying to talk about uh, immigration and, and where labor comes from, but, uh, and, and the role of childcare and family support, but I'm not sure if anybody wants to jump into that complicated I'll, I'll question. I'll, I'll, I'll wade into that one as, as, as a male, it's a dangerous question to, to take on, but, but let, me, let me try. Um, and, and that is, it, it is really important in the, in the long run, right? There's only two ways you can increase uh, population. One is immigration and the other is, is birth rate. Um, and the current birth rate in this country, replacement rate is about 2.1. Uh, it's measured, at, at traditionally uh, fertility rate is measured by a uh, number of, of births uh, per woman in a population. Uh, so 2.1 is replacement rate in Canada. We're about 1.5 uh, today, uh, which means that without immigration, our, our country is, is, is shrinking. Um, by the way, we're not alone. Um, it's similar statistics in, in Western Europe. Uh, and if you go to places like Korea or China uh, or Japan, uh, the numbers are even lower. And you're seeing the effect of depopulation in those countries that have lower immigration rates um, than our own. So everything that we're talking about um, to... Um, allow families um, it easier for people who choose, who choose um, to have families to make it easier for them. That's also good for the long-term uh, prospects of, of the country. And it helps with that back to the beginning of the conversation with the shape of the population as well. So that's why things like early childhood support, uh, including a national um, childcare plan is incredibly, incredibly important. It's not just allowing uh, more people to participate in the workforce. It's making it easier for those Canadians um, who wish to have families um, to allow them to have families. It also speaks to the importance of the point that was made earlier about some communities um, that we have to um, um, we, we have to do a better job with because those communities, uh, uh, for example, Indigenous communities, uh, some uh, uh, new parts of the new Canadian population who tend to have higher birth rates. That's a great thing for the country, and we have to figure out how we're going to get those young, very young. Um, very recently uh, born uh, Canadians, educated, integrated into the system. Um, because if we don't do that, and our fertility rate keeps falling, we're just going to be um, we're just going to be compounding uh, compounding the the issue. And and if you just look at it, the younger, if you want to know the the, the best economic indicator of, some, of of bringing a person to the country, the younger they are, the better. Right, the younger the person is that we either have immigrate or being born, obviously, the better it is because they're going to have a longer work life uh, in due course, 
which will help support um, the system overall. So bringing in an immigrant at age 19 is better economically speaking, there's other benefits than bringing in an immigrant who's 59. Uh, and, and having more young people born is, is, is better than the alternative. So it's not just the number of people, but that shape of that population is incredibly important to the economy. And so watching things like fertility and trying to um, make it easier for those who wish to have children to have children in this country is really important. I think in the, in, the, in the prairie regions, I just want to make this point about this younger demographic that Mark is uh, uh, touching on. We got one of the youngest demographic in Saskatchewan and, and, and Manitoba of Indigenous young people. We need to think, how do we harness that talent and give them the opportunity so they can succeed to help uh, grow this country and build this country? Because when we think of the birth rate not 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 meeting what we would consider a, a normal um, uh, to 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 continue to grow the population in that community, we're having an extremely uh, uh, robust uh, birth rate. But the reality, they're mostly young people and more importantly, young Aboriginal people who doesn't get the same opportunity in our society. And we need to figure out how we do that with all this discussion around reconciliation. How do we actually make this happen? So that generation doesn't have the same failure rate that we've seen from previous generation in their community. I think we've ticked through uh, a number of possible ways of harnessing more talent um, of Canadians, new Canadians, people who might come to Canada and creating opportunities. I wanna give you each a chance, if we, 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 we should wrap up. Um, we've talked about uh, needing to think about how the immigration system connects with the labor market, um, the need for skilling and refilling and investment by the private sector, uh, licensing requirements. Do, can I get a couple of wrapping up thoughts from each of you just briefly, and then we'll hand it back to Kelly. Mark, do you have a quick thought? Sure, I'll, I'll, start, very, I'll, I'll start very quickly and just say we're at a unique point in time here. Um, we've talked about a lot about the challenges, but the one thing we have in this country, and it's unique, it really is unique in the world. There is a consensus around immigration in this country, uh, uh, across the country, rural, urban, um, right, left, across political parties. It's one of the few things we actually agree on almost unanimously um, as, uh, as Canadians. And so we need to take, uh, I'd say there's a, there's a point in time now where we, we, we can take advantage of that. One point I would make is that uh, one point I would make is that we need to have a, a place for a national dialogue. These are questions we're not going to solve by individual conversation. We're going to solve it by government, uh, uh, the private sector, uh, social movement uh, sitting down together to think how we can do a better job in integrating, of course, um, new Canadians that are coming here. But equally, how do we continue to struggle with those already here to give them better opportunities to succeed? Because in absence of that, I think that we're not going to get to where we need to get to. I think there's a moment for us to do this because we recognize that, hey, if this country is going to succeed, we're going to succeed in all hands uh, coming together and working in tandem with each other. So I think this is an opportunity for us to, to help the federal government, but also the provincial and municipal government to make sure that this does happen. Katie? Yeah, I would say, you know, from a human cap back to the human capital perspective, um, we've, I think, Mark, well established that the highest return on investment in human capital is investment in children and youth. Um, and if Canada was a business, and we knew that was the highest ROI place, we take a really, really good look at how much of our resources, our attention, and our policies are devoted to ensuring 
that we're getting great success from the Canadians that the young Canadians that are being born here that already live here, as well as from the young Canadians that are coming to the country. Getting that right is going to do two things. It's going to maximize um, the value of our human capital, uh, our human capital capacity here in Canada. It's also going to help to continue to increase Canada's reputation as a beacon for a place where young people can come and succeed and fulfill their uh, their life dreams. So with those two uh, those two thoughts, I'll, I'll leave Thank you with that. Thank you. Ahmed? I, I go back to the theme that I, uh, that I highlighted earlier. Uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about, we're very, very fortunate, as Mark said, to have a consensus around immigration uh, in this country. Um, but, and I'll go back to the theme that I, that I spoke about in the beginning. A lot of the issues that we're facing, we already luckily have the frameworks and the, and the, the, uh, the not just the frameworks, but in, in some cases, even the programs to, to, to solve them. But I go back to something that the Senator talked about is why did it take a pandemic for us to expedite nurses, uh, internationally trained nurses, uh, to help uh, to help Canadians and be integrated so quickly. Why did it take a pandemic to do that? I would argue that if it wasn't for the pandemic, uh, my uh, ability to get eight uh, childcare agreements before the last election would have been much harder. I, I, I was being told that if it wasn't the pandemic, a lot of the provinces wouldn't have signed those agreements. But again, why did it take a pandemic for people to realize the critical role that childcare plays in labor market participation? And then finally, uh, on, I, you know, when we talk about skills shortages and labor market shortages, it's not an urban problem only. Uh, if you go to rural Canada, the problem is not only more severe in some cases, the, the very survival of a community depends on the ability of the local major employer or a number of major employers being able to attract in a sustain, sustainable way uh, people coming to fill those jobs. And if they're not able to succeed, they simply close down and the, the, the small community disappears. And so um, whether it is on credentials recognition, integration of, um, of internationally trained uh, professionals, uh, better matching of the immigration system to the labor market, we really need to have a conversation uh, around how to do that better and, and be really more ambitious. Uh, finally, I will say that uh, whether it is on, on, on housing affordability or whether it is on labor market shortages, you, we tend to have some tools, but again, the provinces and, and the municipalities and the regional governments have other tools. Uh, in terms of the, the, the thread that connects a lot of these challenges is on inclusion. If we... I, I'm sorry, I'm afraid I'm going to, yeah. I, I hate to do this. I'm going to have to, we're going to have to draw this to a close. And, and, and we have identified, you know, in all of this that... Um, Thanks to your comment, one of the elements here that's going to help is uh, improving the IT, IT system so that we can better match the immigration policy with labor market shortages. Um, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much to all of you. I think we've come up with a number of really specific ideas that I hope will get taken up elsewhere. Um, I want to hand this back to Kelly. Um, and again, thank you all very much. Thanks, Elena. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our panelists and thanks Elena for moderating that uh, critical discussion. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome Graham Fox, Managing Principal at Navigator to deliver some appreciation remarks. Graham, welcome. Thanks very much, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. 
Uh, on behalf of my Navigator colleagues, and indeed on behalf of everyone on this call, uh, it's my pleasure to uh, offer a word of thanks for what I thought was a rich discussion uh, on an important topic that, that due to the pandemic was perhaps set aside uh, for longer than it should have. Um, right from the get-go, I thought the acknowledgement that Canada is in a global competition for talent was critically important. Uh, if we don't acknowledge that in our response, uh, Canada will be left behind. Um, I appreciated the linkages between immigration and, lab and labor market needs and that matching uh, that, needs to, uh, that needs to be done, uh, but also the acknowledgement that lifelong learning and reskilling has to be part of this. Uh, and skills are not something that we cease to acquire when we leave uh, full-time education at the, in our early 20s. But maybe more importantly, I thought the acknowledgement that labor market conditions do not affect all workers in the same way. Uh, was really critical uh, to our policy response. Um, a policy response that has to acknowledge and account for that complexity. Um, a response that recognizes the critical role that governments have to play in this, but that they're not alone uh, in this, and in fact, can't do it alone. Uh, and so we started with a discussion on the private sector and late in the game, uh, we added uh, the academic sector and the not-for-profit sector. I think all have responsibilities here. Uh, to create a, a policy response that can be more nimble uh, in reacting to emerging and changing needs of the labor market. Um, so on behalf of all of us, uh, thank you to, uh, to all the panelists for your insights. Uh, thank you to our moderator for in, uh, facilitating such an engaging discussion. Um, and thank you to the Empire Club for convening uh, such a great group uh, on such an important topic. Uh, so on that, back to you, Kelly. Thanks, Graham. Thank you again to Navigator, CIBC Gallant McDonald, our guest speakers, and everybody who joined us today or who will be tuning in later on demand. I'm delighted to announce some of a new event planned for next week, and it will be the final in-person event of the season. Please join us on June 16th as we host Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, the Honourable Christia Freeland. Minister Freeland will be speaking about the state of the Canadian economy, the global challenge of inflation, and the steps the federal government is taking to make life more affordable for Canadians. More details and tickets to join us in person or virtually for that event can be found at empireclubofcanada.com. As a club of record, all Empire Club of Canada events are available to watch and listen to on demand on our website. The recording of today's event will be available later today, and everybody who had registered will receive an email with a link. Please feel free to forward it on to colleagues, family, friends, keep the conversation going. Thank you again for joining us today. I wish you a great afternoon. Take care, stay safe.